Amen. This morning we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with a, a, a really quick diversion over to chapter 14 as well. So if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles that we've, we've provided for you at the middle of each aisle, uh, kind of under the, the last chair at the center of the aisle. And you can flag somebody down who's sitting over that way and they'll, they'll be happy to pass one to you. Um, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take that one with you. We would love that. We'd love for you to take it and to talk to you about what you find there. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in a study that's been carrying us through the end, going to carry us through the end of the year. We started it back in, in the summer, and we've come up to chapter 11. And, and 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to some friends of his at a church that he founded um, in a city that had not, obviously, because of how early this was, had not known of Jesus before Paul took, took word of Jesus to him. So it's a city that had plenty of other previous habits in place and, and, and cultural expectations, norms that often didn't sit well with the claims that Jesus made on them, as Paul talked about uh, Jesus to, to his friends. And so Paul's writing a sort of follow-up letter to his ministry there to try to help them understand how to put into practice the, the radical newness that Jesus' ministry brings, how he challenges the cultures that they're a part of and, and what is and isn't going to be okay for them going forward because they now own Jesus. And in this passage in particular... Paul takes us to issues of gender, to what it is to be male and female, and specifically what it is to be male and female in the context of the church and the home. Those are the two contexts that he, that he points to in this letter. I don't know if any of you guys saw this. It was, I think it was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it came out last year. Uh, a book called The Year of Biblical Womanhood. You know those, those year of type books that are out there where somebody will type take a certain lifestyle or certain, uh, certain idea and try to just live it out uh, faithfully without any kind of contradiction for a whole year and it turns into all sorts of absurd uh, circumstances. And, and so somebody, uh, her name is uh, Rachel Held Evans, the author's name, decided she was going to do that with all the things the Bible says about what it is to be a, a, a godly woman. So she cataloged them all and then for a year she took like a month and would give that month to a certain set of uh, of regulations. You can imagine that this got crazy in a hurry. Uh, she, she spent some time holding a sign. Oh, wait, let me back up. Because one of the laws in the Old Testament, I can't remember the exact reference, is that you should honor your husband in the city gates. She took a sign that said, Dan is awesome, and by the city limit sign in the town where she lived, and she just held it up while cars would drive past. And they got that one checked off. During her time of the month, she camped outside in their yard because one of the laws says you can't be in the house. So she put up a tent in her backyard and had a walkie-talkie to make sure nothing went wrong, and that's what she did. Um, she went around calling her husband master for a while. Um, you can imagine the, the effect of this book. She's trying to make a point that the Bible's culture is just so different from ours. It would be absurd to take the Bible's cues on what it is to be a woman in, to, in this day and age. That if you want to do it, either you're going to have to just choose what you like and discard the rest, or you're going to have to be absurd in the way that she was. The book has an obvious resonance. Because any of, any of us who have spent any time reading the Bible, um, if, if, if the Bible isn't new to you this morning, you've, you've come across things, not, and, and, and chances are in a whole variety of areas, that just don't make much sense in the modern world. They seem so removed from our culture from our values and assumptions, that it's just hard to imagine how we could get anything from them. And I don't know that there is a more hot-button issue in this regard than gender in our day and age because so much of what 
the Bible says about manhood and womanhood is embedded in practices that are far removed from our own. And these issues are touchy because it's easy to take some of these texts and assume that what's being described is not just cultural but maybe a pecking order of who's valuable and in what order they're valuable. It's easy to read into stuff in the Bible. Other things we know was true in the ancient world. That people then did believe in a sort of chain of being, especially in the Greek world, where you kind of had the spirits and souls at the top, and then there was men, and then there was women, and then there was, I don't know, dogs or monkeys or something that came next. And everything had a place in this chain, and it was very much understood to be a sort of quality of being. It's something we can see even in other cultures besides our own today. I mean, there are cultures out there where, where not only is it greatly preferred that you give birth to sons, but in some cases now it's engineered by technology. Babies are chosen because of their gender. Female abortion is a much, much more prominent practice than abortion in general in certain parts of the world. So what we've got before us today is a challenge what we've got to do is go into this letter. It's going to say some things about men and women that aren't going to sound right to many of us. And what we've got to do is sift through what's said and try to understand what it is saying and what it isn't saying, not assume we know what it means. We need to be critical thinkers and understand that we bring to the table lots of assumptions about the meaning of words and ways of reasoning that Paul didn't share. And so we're liable to misread him and it be our fault and not his. And then, once we've done the hard work of trying to figure out what Paul actually says in these texts, then we've got to actually sit under another kind of question. Then we've got to say, what do we do with the fact that even once all of the the sort of clutter, the misconceptions are cleared away, we're still left with a message that may not be tasteful to us? What do we do with that? So we're going to talk about Paul's specific ideas here, about men and women, how they relate in the home and in the church. But we're also talking about something bigger, We're talking about how we relate to the Bible, about how we relate to the authority of the Bible, what sort of authority it has, whether or not it really comes from God in all its parts, and what it means to submit to it when it doesn't sit well with us. So that's the task we have before us. We don't have enough time to do it well, but we're going to, we have prayed, and we're going to continue to pray, I hope you will be praying, that God will give us the ability to do it well, that he'll be honored by the way we spend our time together this morning in his word that will come, come away as more obedient and more in love with the things he's told us than we were when we went into it, that we'll be celebrating what he's told us and not swallowing it as a tough pill. That's, that's what I'm praying for us this morning. I want to answer these two questions that I've already raised. What does the text actually say? That's what we're going to start. I'm going to make sure we get a clear sense of it. And then, and then we're going to say, what do we do with what the text actually says? Now, Let's read it together. I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, and then I'm going to skip ahead and also read a couple of verses from chapter 14. Now, let me quickly say what I, why I'm doing that. It's because chapter 14 is talking about something else. It's talking about orderly worship, uh, about you know, where prophecy and speaking in tongues and stuff like that come in, and he's giving them some ground rules for how to make sure your, your services don't run off the rails. And, and one, of the, one of the things that he says has to do with women and whether they should speak in church and in what context. And it is, it is such a significant issue, and chapter 14 is so long, that I didn't believe I'd be able to give it the kind of attention that it requires if I treat it as part of all of chapter 14, because we're going to be doing that whole chapter all, all at once together. 
So I think it, it fits very nicely with what Paul's saying in chapter 11. I'm just going to lump it in today, and we're going to talk about both of them uh, today. So let's read them together now. If you would stand with me, please, in honor of God's word as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then from chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now from chapter 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So what does the text actually say? We've got to really be careful with that on this one. Uh, it seems to say a lot of things, right? But we come to it as 21st century Westerners. We come to it differently than people 100 years came to it, than people 500 years came to it, than people 1,000 years came to it, than those to whom Paul wrote it came to it when it was written. We've got to be careful that we don't import things we assume he's talking about into this text. So what we want to do now is kind of do some brush clearing, all right, and try to get down to what he actually is saying. Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer here and tell you that on a lot of the things in this passage, pretty much nobody knows exactly what he's saying. And, but what I mean by that is that the experts, the scholars, New Testament commentators, pretty much throw up their hands at the beginning of the chapter and say there are several references in here that we really can't be sure what they mean. And verse 10 is one of the main ones about having a symbol of authority on or over a woman's head because of the angels. Pretty much nobody knows what that means. Several of the commentaries I, I read for some help on it didn't even try. They were like, we don't know. We'll never know. <laughs> we don't know exactly. The, 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 their claim is, and I think it makes sense, people knew what it meant when Paul wrote it. It's lost to us. They knew. Because they were part of his culture. They knew what he meant. But we don't. Thankfully, that's not, we don't have to throw up our hands on all of the stuff in this text. We can make some progress. We want to do that carefully together. There's so many questions we could ask. Um, 
And obviously, for the sake of time, we won't have, we won't have the, the ability to ask all of them. But what I want to do is, is, is come away with two sort of clear and concise takeaways from what he's saying here. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are, and then I'm going to show you how we get there by, by interacting with some of these details. I think what he is saying is that God established gender distinctions. And that includes some differences in function. God established gender, gender distinctions, and that includes sometimes differences of function. So that, that's the first thing. And then the second thing he says, and this is his main concern, this is what he's really talking about, is that our worship practices, what we do when we gather, ought to reflect trust in what God has established. What we do when we gather ought to show that we trust him, and that we're not resi- resisting him. Those are the two pretty simple ideas. Now let me try to get you there through some of the things that the text takes us to. So, so first, this idea that God is the one who's behind differences in gender, um, and that, it, that includes some, some differences in function. I think it comes up in a couple places. So, like I said, the main issue here in both of these sections is what, what you can do when you come together, like the cultural practices of the church when it gathers and how that affects men and women. But he, he grounds his discussion of what's okay to do in, in, in what he believes men and women actually are as created by God. So at the very beginning of the passage, verse 3 in chapter 11, he gives us a theological statement that sort of sets the tone for what's coming. Then he goes there again in the middle of his discussion of head coverings and whether or not a woman should have one on her head. Um, he, he goes back to sort of a, a theological level explanation and he ties it to creation. So, so we get this, this sense that Paul believed there were gender distinctions that God established from verse 3 and then from verses 7 to 9 and 11 and 12 in chapter 11. Let me point you there. In verse 3, he goes to a concept known as headship. It's not only here, it's in several places in the Bible. It was been very common, very commonly understood at that time. He says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Now, this is one of those places where we've got to be really careful that we don't import our associations with these words onto the text and, and think we've got it figured out when we might not. Now, I, I don't know about what you immediately think of when you hear the word head, but in this context, in the context of relationships, I kind of go to the, sort of the boss, the, the, the person in charge, the head of a company who sort of runs the show and people take orders from him, everyone else being their, his direct report, so to speak. That is a 21st century concept that we don't need to import here. That isn't what headship means. Headship in the Bible, it does include some sense of authority. That's part of it. But I think an even better word for describing it is responsibility. The head is one who has been, who has been appointed as a, a representative for the group in this relationship, as the one who sort of stands for the group, who, who, uh, who is implicated in, in what the group does or who does things on behalf of the group in some cases. So the head, Christ as head of the man or in other places as head of the church is helpful here. That Christ is the head of the church in a sense, yes, that he does have authority over it, but, but often what, what's meant there is that he stands as its representative, that he, is, he represents those who trust in him and stands in their place and gives them life because of that. So Adam was the head of the human race to begin at the beginning of the story. He acted on behalf of those who, uh, those who would come after him. And God dealt with those who came after him through Adam. And in his sin, he, this is Romans chapter 5, where Paul uses some similar language. 
Adam was not just acting on his own behalf, but as a sort of head for the race. We've got to be careful in verse 3 of chapter 11 because we know from other teaching in the Scriptures that you can't just take this as a straight-up hierarchy that's being established. Look at the way it's even ordered. That It starts with the head of every man being Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and it goes back to Christ again. Head of Christ is God. It's not an ascending order. He's not trying to set up a sharp hierarchy here. You also got to be careful not to push it too far on what it means that Christ is the head of man. Is it, is it true that Jesus stands only for men and that women get saved through their relationship to their husbands? That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the head of women just as much as he is of men. We can't push, in other words, the detail of the structure of this verse too far. What we can say is that Paul's trying to make a pretty simple point. Everybody's got a head. Everybody's got one. Including Jesus. In the Trinity, Jesus has a function that's given to him that's different from that of the Holy Spirit, different from that of the Father, such that Paul can write that Christ, that, that God is the head, or the Father is the head of, of Christ. That's what Paul's pointing to, a principle we call headship. And he's specifically applying it to the way men and women relate. That in the relationship of husband to wife, God has established a special function for husbands that he's calling here headship. That they are responsible for their family. It doesn't mean that they command their family like a CEO and the wife does what she's told. It's not, that's not in any of the texts about how husbands and wives relate. It's not in there. Caricatures place it in there. It's not in there. It does mean that, that God calls on women to trust their husbands as God's gift to the family, the one through whom God intends to bless the family if he's faithful in his leadership. But we're going to say some more about that later. For now, the point he's making in verse 3 is that God has set up some differences between men and women, and, and in some cases, particularly here in the, in the context of the home and eventually in the church, that includes a difference in function, that there's a headship in place for men in a couple of contexts. Hopefully you're still with me. I'm not getting much feedback here. Are you guys with me? Can you nod your heads if you're still following me? Okay. Uh, the same point comes up later. So far it's just everybody's got a head and God meant it to be that way. It's for our good. Same point gets reinforced later in the passage. So he goes from verse 3 into the, the issue that he's really concerned with, which is whether or not women should have something on top of their heads when they worship. But then later on, in verses 7 to 9 and then in 11 to 12, he goes back to talking about the theory behind it all, about, about what is always and everywhere true that points to God's establishing these different roles. And here he goes to creation. And this is one of the trickier ones. It's one of the ones that, that people pretty much agree we don't fully know what it means. It would, have known, it would have made sense to the people who first got it that some is lost on us. He points to the order of creation. This is the only place Paul does this, that, that God created men chronologically before he created women. And that when women come into the picture in the Genesis story, it's because men aren't complete. That God just couldn't make an androgynous creation. He wanted something that was complementary when, when he set up men and women. You can imagine a creation in which there's just humans, right? And everybody's exactly the same. It got, that, that wasn't, for reasons that we aren't brought into, that wasn't what God thought best. He thought it would be better to have men and women and to have them complete each other, to be complementary to each other. And Paul here in another place points to the order in which they were created as just another reason for going back to God establishing this headship function that men in particular contexts have a responsibility that's unique to them. Now, I don't, you're forgiven if the sort of fact that, that women were created second and not first 
doesn't like land on you as a sort of aha moment. I don't think Paul is trying to make it a sort of aha moment. It's like, oh, of course, women were created second. Well, obviously then men are heads in their, in their marriages or in the church. Um, I don't think he's looking for that aha moment. I don't get it when I read that. It doesn't clear it all up for me. I think what he's just, well, all he's doing is saying God doesn't do things randomly. And when he created men first and women second, he did that for a reason, as a pointer to something he was establishing on purpose, which was a, a set of functions in these contexts that are for our good. That's the, that's the overview of what I take from those verses. There are trickier details in there that we don't have time to get into. Things about what it would mean to be the glory of God or the glory of man. Just quickly, it's a reference to honor that, that, that man is created in the Genesis account as a way of honoring God in his image, as a way of reflecting what he's like, being a sort of um, a, a champion of his character in the world and that and that, uh, uh, that women are called to do that for their husbands in their, in their marriages, to, to be part of what makes this person something they could not be on their own. Um, other passages say husbands have that same responsibility towards their wives, to sort of cultivate them and bring out of them the, uh, the best, help shape them into the image of Jesus. But here I think we're talking about women created because Adam is incomplete on his own, right? And he needs something from this relationship that he couldn't get otherwise. And in that sense, in that com- completion sense, she helps to honor and, and, and uh, maximize what this man can be in that relationship. I think that's what he's talking about in these verses. But really, he's just pointing back to the, the original point. That God doesn't create things randomly. Even the order of it matters. Now, I know what you might be thinking here. You might be thinking that Paul's just reflecting what we know was true for pretty much everybody in the ancient world. And, and like I said before, it still is true in many cultures today. That This belief that there's a, a sort of chain of being and women exist below men in that chain just above monkeys or dogs or whatever. That's what the Greeks thought. That's what their best philosophers wrote. And it's pretty common in other parts of the world today. On a first reading of, of Paul's argument... I, I think that you could see it as not surprising at all. Paul is just sort of ripping off what people in his culture thought about men and women. But I think we can't afford to let ourselves stay there. Because if we do, we're missing... It's actually an ironic thing if, that we would think Paul was just aping the other views of his culture. Actually, he is radically diverging from those views. And verses 11 and 12 point us to that. It's like Paul knows that you could think from reading verses 7 to 9 that he's just talking like everybody else did at his time, that women are less important than men, that they aren't as trustworthy or shouldn't be given as much responsibility. It's like he knows that's what his audience probably thinks, that's what they were raised to believe, but he won't stand for it. He says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. It's a level playing field. Yeah, it's true that men came first in creation, he says, but now men come from women. And all are complete, all are under the Lord. Paul is not going to let you go where our minds want to take us, that he's just aping what everybody else thought and believed that women were not as important as men. That isn't what he says at all. There's no hierarchy of importance here, no independence from one another. Everyone is under God, and that's what matters. His point here, throughout all these details that we've, that we've looked at, is, is much more limited. It has nothing to do with the quality of being of men and women. It has only to do with the fact that God 
has decided to make them different. That the world will be better and humans will flourish if men and women are different from each other and if in a couple of relationships they have a different function. That's pretty much the point. Hopefully that's clear. Now, now I want to make sure now that we get into what Paul's main concerns were, which are how to take this thing that God set up and put it into practice in the context of our worship. And that's where some of the really bizarre details come in. The ones that are very far, not bizarre to the people who receive them, bizarre to us in the 21st century. Things that are hard for us to sort of latch on to. It's hard to know exactly what gave rise to this issue. I mean, maybe, maybe Paul had been teaching about the equality of men and women under Christ. Galatians, another letter that he wrote to a different church, has this amazing statement about equality that, that in Christ there's neither slave nor free, there's male nor female, there's Jew nor Gentile. The field is leveled. It's kind of what he says here in verses 11 and 12. And you could see some in Corinth being new Christians, having all this stuff in their minds that they've, that they've been raised in that's very different from, from what Paul is teaching them, not knowing exactly what to do with that. And maybe saying, well, that means gender distinctions don't matter. That means we can just sort of be who we want. We can choose our identity. And we can, we can do what we want when we come together. So women, perhaps, putting off the distinctive appearance of women or the distinctive function in that culture of women. So Paul sort of brings that home in our passage. What I want to do is, again, point to what the text does say, and then we're going to consider what to do with it. And I've already given you the sort of short answer. The short answer is that our, what we do when we come together, what you might call our worship practices, how we relate to each other when we come together, should reflect a trust in what God created us to be and how he set up these particular identities and functions. That's the, that's the short answer. Where he gets there is through, first, an issue of head coverings, whether or not women should be covered or veiled when they come to worship. What's meant, what, what was meant by head coverings in that time is notoriously hard to unpack. It's another one of those issues where probably a lot of it is just lost to us. We, we won't be able to recover it. It's especially hard to know what he means by, by whether men should be covered or not. He goes there first in verse... Uh, in verse 4, comes back to it in verse 7. Uh, it, it, what, the, the, the sort of payoff of his claim is clear enough that it's shameful if a man covers his head in worship and that that's tied into these things that God has set up, the responsibility uh, as, as a head of the family that God has set up. And, and yet it's not clear at all what sort of covering the man is being referred to. The, the word it's literally having down the head. That's, how, that's the literal translation of it. There's speculation about maybe it was uh, in pagan worship. Some of the priests in pagan temples would sometimes, when they go into worship, they would have like a long tunic on or something, and they would cover their heads with it. And maybe it's associated with paganism. I, I don't know. We don't know. What he's mainly interested in, though, is women and, and how women carry themselves and dress themselves when they come into worship. It's still a little confusing about what the significance is there. It seems clear that he's, that he's talking about some sort of physical covering, like a veil, like you would see in many Islamic cultures today. But it isn't clear exactly what message is sent by removing the covering, by taking the veil off. I mean, it's clear that he doesn't want women to do that. It's clear that it's tied up with honor and shame. That comes up in every verse where it's talked about. But what, what made it a shameful thing to uncover in worship is a little bit unclear. One of the more plausible explanations is that it had to do with, with, uh, with sexual practices at that time, that there was a sort of association, maybe a, tied into prostitution, for a woman who went veilless. Um, it's also 
ties into this argument about shaving her head, that she may as well just shave her head, just go all the way if she's not going to, to have a, a covering on her head. We don't know exactly what the cultural significance then would have been of shaving one's head, but it isn't a, a stretch to tie it into to some sort of sexual practices at that time. I remember seeing um, uh, even just 50, 60 years ago during World War II, the World War II era, one of the ways that, um, that sympathizers with the Nazis in, in occupied countries were punished when the Nazis pulled out was that women who had slept with Nazi generals were publicly shamed. And the way that one of the main things they did was shave their heads, keep their heads shaven. So that everywhere they go, they are marked. Maybe that's a similar, maybe that's kind of what he's getting to. You may as well just go all the way if, and shave your head and mark yourself if you're going to take off your head covering. I don't know. The, the, I think what is clear enough is that, is that there was something distinctive about their gender identity in their culture that's tied up with wearing the head covering. And in, their, in Christ, coming to churches, they were perhaps thinking that their new status in Christ meant that, that the fact that they were women didn't matter anymore. So we can get rid of something that marks us as women in our culture. Paul's saying, that brings shame on your husband for you to do that. It brings associations towards him in the minds of people that you don't want him to have as, as, as the one who represents the family in this headship role. I think that part is clear enough, even if we don't fully understand what the significance of it was. The point is, he wants them running to a gender identity God has given them and not a- away from it, even in Christ. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and and tell you, I don't think this passage applies for us today. I don't think that women need to be veiled in Nashville when they come to worship. I think think the passage itself and the way that it reasons points us in that direction. Because what he's saying, when he's talking about the danger of a woman not having a covering on, he always talks about shame and dishonor. And so it's the fact that someone would be shamed or dishonored that worries him, not the sort of universal fact that the woman's head is uncovered. So if you're in a different culture where shame and dishonor aren't what happens when a woman goes veilless into worship, well, then his argument is, it goes away. Paul's not worried about it as an end in itself. He's worried about it for what it communicates to these people at this time. It doesn't communicate that anymore. And so all of you ladies who are unveiled this morning are sort of off the hook. That's the short answer. Here's the, let me summarize it. Women uncovering or men covering in this time for reasons that we can't fully get into or even understand would have indicated a pushback against God-designed distinctions between men and women and their functions in the home and in the church. And Paul doesn't want that. Your second example, so we've got the head coverings example. Chapter 14 takes us to a second example of what this principle of God ordained distinctions between men and women should look like when it gets translated into the practice of the churches. And here it's about how women should speak and carry themselves. So we read it. It talks about women being silent in the churches, um, about not speaking up when things are being discussed. And uh, that's a tough one to read, right? It's also a tough one to put into practice because it's out of character with what we've just read in chapter 11 where he assumes women are praying and prophesying. Because what he says is they should be covered when they pray or prophesy, right? That's when they should be covered, chapter 11 says. So he assumes that in public worship they are doing these things. They're speaking. They're not being silent. 
So what does he actually mean? This is one of those times where we've got to be careful not to assume we know what he means, but try to get through the difference between us and that time and see it in its own context, on its own terms. And here the key is the context of those verses. Because what he's talking about in the bigger chapter is, what, is how to sort of keep things on the rails in your worship services. And in particular, in this time when they didn't have the written scriptures and they were hearing from God sort of live uh, through people prophesying, they had to be careful that they regulated what was said and sort of responded to it and made sure that what was said was, was consistent with what the apostles had been teaching. Because not just anything could go. Um, what we know from Paul's letters is there was a lot of false teaching about Jesus flying around at that time. And prophecy is a particularly rife way to do that, rife with that problem, because in prophecy you can say, oh, I've got a word from the Lord, here's what it is, so obey me. Well, so, so Paul's setting up there a system for checking prophecy and a responsibility for checking it. And what he's saying in those verses, this is what pretty much everybody that I read agrees on this, that when he talks about women being silent in chapter 14, he's saying that when the time comes for sort of checking these prophecies, for, you might say, regulating what the official teaching of the church is, that is a responsibility that God has given to men. Now, I would say, based on what Paul says elsewhere, that you can even be more specific than that. Because regulating what the church is teaching is something that elsewhere he gives to elders in particular. The elders are the ones who are responsible for teaching and, and um, for having authority over the, the affairs of the church. And, that, and, in, and in Timothy, he specifically designates men, kind of like in the home, as a sort of head through whom God is going to relate. And it's not just any men. It's specific men that are qualified, that are set apart by the congregation to do that for them. And I think, we can, I think it's fair and safe to sort of bring some of that into 1 Corinthians 14 and say that's what he's getting at. Otherwise, Paul's just... He's just contradicting himself two chapters later after he's already assumed women were going to be speaking. That's why we have Stephanie praying for us this morning. And Lane is up here leading us in worship. We don't believe that women are to be silent in the churches. We believe that women are part of the complex of gifts and perspectives that God gives to make us whole as a congregation. So, all all, all of this to say, to bring some order to what the text actually says, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Paul believes... That God has created men and women. He didn't just create an androgynous human race. That he did that on purpose. And that within that, he's also given certain functions in certain places, specifically to men. And to apply that, what you do, how you do it, how you bear, you're bearing your, your goals and, and uh, ideals that you put into place in your gatherings together should reflect your trust in what God set up and not push back against what God set up. That's what he says. Now, how do we respond to that in five minutes? Um, I think the first thing we've got to do is we've got to be very careful that we don't overextend the implications of this text. I've already tried to do some of this work just sort of as we've gone along. But I want to make it even clearer here at the end. First thing we do when we, when we are, encounter something in the Scriptures that doesn't necessarily sit well with what we normally would think, we've got to be careful not to go too far in, in, in extending the implications. So this is to those of us, I think, who... This is actually a, a more important point for, for those who maybe were raised in very traditional uh, societies or homes and might be 
and might be tempted to think the text says more than it actually says. So in this case, this text says nothing, I've already said, about the the quality of women, the qualification of women versus men. It says nothing about how decisions get made in a home or in a church. It says nothing about what roles or uh, what, uh, what jobs that women can legitimately hold in the world. It says nothing that can't imagine a woman who is in authority and leadership and headship, if you will, as the vice president of a major corporation, while also in the context of her marriage, trusting the headship of her husband as the, as the representative leader for the family. Not that she just checks out and doesn't, isn't included in decisions, but trusts God as a gift to her and to their family. We don't want to overextend the, the implications here and limit things that shouldn't be limited. Here's number two. We should embrace the possibility that we have for a real relationship with God through his word. This is something that Tim Keller, a pastor in, in New York City, has really helped me with on, on, on what to do when the Bible doesn't sound right to you. Uh, I think he was talking, I think this came up in the context of the Bible's teaching on uh, evolution, maybe, or uh, as it relates to evolution, um, to science, and, when, when, and to the miraculous, and things that just don't seem right to us. Keller points to the old book, and I think it was a book first, in the movie The Stepford Wives, the cautionary tale. What happens in that, in that movie is these men decide they want to craft wives that are perfectly perfectly tailored to meet their particular needs and desires. But what they end up with is, is robots. What they end up with are non-relationships. Because for a relationship to be real, the person must be other than you and therefore must be able to challenge you, to think differently from you. And if what God offers us through his word is a relationship with him as a real person, we should expect that sometimes, in some places, God's word isn't going to be our word. It's going to challenge us, push, push us where we might not want to be pushed. And that it, it, I, what I would say, what Keller says, is that the Bible's no good to us if it can't do that for us sometimes. That is the key to its usefulness over 2,000 years plus of its history, is its ability to stand over us. If that's what's happening here for you, I would encourage you to think about the beauty that's offered to you in a God who can contradict you if he's spoken to you in his word. Here's the last thing I'll say. We've got to celebrate the fact that what God commands, he commands for our good, even when we don't understand it. What God commands, if he's commanded it, you know, if we've done the work to actually figure out what the text says, if we take the text to be God's word, We've isolated what a command is that he's actually given to us. We can trust that when he commands us, he commands us not to keep us from being what we can be, from fulfilling our full potential. But he commands us for our good and blesses us when we trust him. And therefore, we can celebrate something even that we don't understand. So in the context of, of male headship, I, I do not see anywhere in the scriptures an explanation for why God chooses this particular role in the home and in the church for men that, that ties to anything true about women. There's room for disagreement here, I guess, but I don't see any passage that says women are less qualified, therefore women cannot be in these positions. It's easier, in other words, to strike off reasons that God 
set things up the way that he did in these passages than to tell you why he set things up the way that he did. It's certainly not about value or about status or about qualification. It isn't about quality. It's about responsibility and why God has chosen to give this particular responsibility to men in these two contexts is one that I don't believe the Bible fully explains to us. But I think God loves to do things that way. I think if you start at the beginning and you read the story, the overarching story of the Bible, you're going to find him acting through Abraham to establish a people, through a guy that was beyond the age of childbearing, who had no children, who had no land, no place to call his own. And that's the guy God chooses to establish a kingdom out of. He's the God who chose David instead of his older, stronger, more impressive-looking brothers because he wanted people to know when David is strong, it's God who's strong through him. It's God who set up communion as the place that we meet with him in a special way around pieces of bread and, 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 and wine. Why? Why is that the way that God has chosen to help us remember him and commune with him? The fact that we can't explain that fully is the part of the point. God loves to act to bless us when we honor him with obedience and things that we don't fully understand. So if this is a tough passage for you and you don't fully understand it, what I would encourage you to do, the way I've made peace with these texts, is to trust that, that God loves to bless us when we don't understand why, when we obey him because we trust him rather than because we demand an explanation. Only God's spirit can give us this trust. We're going to pray together now that he would help us. I'm also going to stick around specifically right up here after the service because I'd love to answer follow-up questions you might have about this passage. I, I get that, it's, that, that we've barely scratched the surface of the things that are interesting and somewhat confusing about it. I want to make sure that we can talk it out if you're interested. So I'm going to hang around after. Let's, let's pray together first and then continue to worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us and you have given us... Uh, you have given us clear instruction on how we should relate to each other and to you. I thank you that even when we don't fully understand things, you are still able to bless us through those things. Thank you for the way your grace works and it's all of its mystery and power. And that's what we ask you for with this as we try to be faithful to it in our homes and our church. As we try to wrap our minds around it and then stir our hearts up by it, we ask that your spirit be with us. And help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.